Welcome to episode 10 of Which Decade is Tops or Pops? We have made it into double figures. If you're looking for the results of episode 9, they have already been published on our separate Express Results Bulletin, leaving us clear to crack on with this week's selection. Now, this time, the Magic Randomizer has given us a year suffix of 3, not had that one before, and a chart position of 8. So that means we will be looking at songs that were number 8 in the charts, on the day of recording, March the 15th, from 1963 all the way to 2013. Got some playlists for you in case you can't access them via links on the show notes. tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 10y for YouTube, 10s for Spotify, 10e for the extracts and bonus bits. Let's start, as we always do, with... The 60s. This is Hey Paula by Paul and Paula. It was the first of two top 10 hits that Paul and Paula had in 1963. They had no other hits at all ever. It peaked to this position of number eight, but it was number one in the USA, not just in the pop charts. It was number one in the US R&B charts, extraordinarily. And it was number one in Canada, Australia, New Zealand and Sweden. Paul and Paula weren't really called Paul and Paula. They were called Ray Hildebrand and Jill Jackson. And early pressings on a local indie label of Hey Paula had them credited as their real names, Jill and Ray. When they got a bigger record deal, it was suggested that it was a bit daft having Jill and Ray singing Hey Paula. So from that point on, they became Paul and Paula. The song was written by Paul or Ray Hildebrand and they were never actually a couple in real life. Paula, Jill Jackson, was the niece of the owner of the boarding house where Ray lived at the time. So this was brand new to me. Hey, Paula, not never heard of Paul and Paula or Hey, Paula or Hey, Paul or Dear Paula as another song of their album. Introducing Paul and Paula goes. There's a lot of Paul and Paula content on their Paul and Paula album by Paul and Paula uh, in 1963. You know, we've talked a little bit on previous episodes about that kind of weird early 60s period with the Anthony Newley and how everything was just a bit drippy. And I mean, pop had arrived at this point, like proper pop music had arrived by 1963. So God only knows who was still buying this. I mean, it is even by early 60s, drippy, schlocky pop standards. It's terrible. I think one of its problems is that renaming your artists Paul and Paula because the song is sung by Paul to Paula and then by Paula to Paul only really works once, doesn't it? It's quite a gimmick and it obviously did work, but it doesn't work subsequently, do it? Because you've got an old series of hits called Is It Time For Bed, Paula? And Are You Going To Aldi, Paul? It just doesn't work, does it? Don't you want me, Paula? There you go. Well, maybe, maybe it could. So... As a kind of almost one-off novelty, you know, they're called Paul and Paula. The song's about Paul and Paula. And they say, hey, Paul, hey, Paula, hey, Paul, hey, Paula. I mean, it sort of works, doesn't it? But like I say, I'm not surprised they didn't have much more success because it's the kind of gimmick you get away once. There's a song on the album called Dear Paula, where he just delivers like a narration over the top of Hey, Paula. It's like, what are you doing, man? I mean, you're taking this whole Paula thing way past its logical conclusion. I got slight. And this is neither a bad or a good thing. 
baby it's cold outside vibes from it because i think it's that kind of conversational one person talking to the other and the other person talking back kind of thing i mean it's nowhere near as troublesome as uh baby it's cold outside has become but that's what it kind of gave me a little bit of of all of these songs it probably is the one that i've been idly singing over the last couple of weeks the most but that is by no means a representation of my feelings towards it i think it's just the novelty of every time i'm doing something i just hear somebody in my ear going hey paula and then a bit later someone in my other ear i'll just hear a hey paul and they'd be like make it stop it's like i'm going mad so yeah sorry paul sorry paula not for me. Yeah, I listened to that song, Dear Paula, as well. It was actually a later single of theirs. The hits by then had completely dried up. I think Desperation was setting in. It was one of their final singles, 1965. So, yeah, it's bizarre. It's just the whole of Hey Paula playing in the background. And the, the, the concept of the song is that Paul and Paula are writing letters to each other saying, oh, do you remember the good old days all those years ago? three years ago, when we were big, I actually wrote down a couple of quotes from Paula's half of the track. Um, She's reminiscing away. And she says to Paul, remember when I used to have to answer all of the fan mail while you watched TV? That's the kind of man Paul was. And then she says, do you remember when we went to England and saw Buckingham Palace, the Crown Jewels and, oh yeah, the Beatles? Hey, that was before the days of Ringo. Oh, credibility points for Paul and Paula there. They must have gone down the cavern. Hey, Paul. Oh, God. It's yet another Paul. Please stop saying Paul. Right, so this, in the spirit of stopping saying Paul, it's not particularly appealing, but it's also not a Paula-ing either. Um, I don't Ooh. particularly like this, but not for the first time. I do find myself whimsically missing the 60s which is an era that I wasn't even alive for because it's so gentle and harmless and lovey-dovey you know I'm like oh imagine a time where things could be so uncynical like it's so soft like no one would listen to this these days no they shouldn't get a foot in the door because we're all bitter drug addicts in therapy and you know we're all such dicks basically and you know the 60s must have just been people stood hand in hand singing songs all around the world it's nice enough 60s sort of rolling tune it would be a nice background music for a cheesy wedding montage in a cheesy film that would have a wedding montage and where the leads were called paul and paul (laughs) (laughs) but you know a a counterpart to this would be hey ma by cameron which is a nice enough hip-hop record but sort of shows the gulf of time and how things are just slightly less savory than they were back then as i say i don't like it i can't dislike it there's not much to dislike there's not really that much to like but it's fine if i had to describe meh with a song i would kind of go no this would be it it's pleasant enough i'm going to carry on your logical argument here about how the 60s was an uncynical time and as we got into the 90s it became much more dark and dirty because the 90s equivalent of this song is Eamon and frankie and that wasn't a paula i love you that was whatever mike's word is waste off love you i don't want you back and love you right back. Yeah. yeah. I did actually look at the YouTube comments for this, and lo and behold, someone left a comment saying, my name is Paul, and my darling late wife was Paula. So there are two people in the world for who that song had special meaning. Bit niche marketing, considering what a huge hit it was. Yeah, I've got to echo what Nick said with regard to this being a bit like 
the week in 1960 when Anthony Newley was in the charts with Y and everything else in the top 10 was similar sort of stuff. I don't feel pop music has really advanced that much from early 1960 to early 1963. I've, I've had a play through the top 20 for this week and it's all pretty safe, twee, cloying, no edge, dare I say, heteronormative. I won't go down that route again, I promise you. With one glaring exception, because the Beatles were at number two with Please Please Me, and that just sounds like a bolt from the future. And you can see why that changed everything, and you can see why everything needed to change as well. What I thought about Hey Paul, or as a song, it's got what now sounds like a very basic melody and arrangement. And I do feel in general, pop has got a lot more sophisticated since this, and that makes it sound all the more dated. I have a kind of theory for why those simple songs did so well. And that's because I think pop music was still being made for the sheet music market. Now, in 1963, there was still an official national sheet music chart. I've actually found the archives for the entire sheet music charts from 30th December 1939 to 30th of January 1965. That went on for 25 years. And there were sheet music charts for 12 years before they were actually record charts it got to 1965 pop was advancing at such a degree a lot of the stuff couldn't be played on the old joanna and there were fewer homes that had pianos but there was a time when an awful lot of homes had pianos and that was the primary medium for pop music was sheet music and i could totally imagine someone with a fairly limited ability being able to bash out hey paula on the old joanna with um their good lady joining in or vice versa it's also an example, and there were many of these at the time, of a pop song that was about getting married or being married or wanting to get married. There was a lot of that about in the early 60s. That's completely died out as a tradition in pop music. The, the last hit I could find that referenced marriage was Bruno Mars in 2011 with Marry You. But that's kind of a jokey song because he's so drunk. He's going, shall we just do something really stupid and get married? So kind of sets it apart, if you like. I guess one reason is the average marriage age has gone up considerably from 1963 to now. Looking at the performance clips of Paul and Paul, they're like waxworks. They barely move. They just, there's these fixed expressions of, of the, well, very little emotion is conveyed by either of them. It's almost as if they weren't a real couple. Oh, wait, they weren't a real couple. Also, bizarrely, the B-side of Hey Paula was called Bobby is the One. Oh, come on, Paula, make your mind up. The hit did plough a fairly narrow seam. Looking at through all the titles, they're all similarly about just how much in love Paul and Paula were, with one exception. It was their final US hit, First Quarrel. I had a look at this closely. Paul says, I thought I saw you with Jim. Paula, I was just talking with him. Paul, well, I guess I had it wrong. Paula, I should have been at home. Oh, Paula, you shouldn't just have been there. Don't let him do that to you. And then in the song later, Paul goes, referring to the previous quarrel, what was it all about? And Paula says, I don't remember now. And then later he does it again. What was it all about? I don't remember now. He's gaslighting her. <laughs> Very worried about Paula Paul. It's good job it weren't a real couple. That's about all I have to say about Hey Paul. I've actually said more than I thought I was going to say. Drippy, sappy, cloying, 
heteronormative next a couple of comments so you obviously didn't hear their later album where with the hits jog on paul <laughs> and paul i've changed the locks um i think you mean waste music using your language i don't yeah. think you're allowed to use that word are you mm-hmm. <laughs> and also because it's lost all meaning i think the beatles that you were referring to is paulie's paulie's me isn't it oh dear that is a ball in, indeed <laughs> every song from now on that we talk about is just going to have paul in the title honestly i just i can't see any way around this it's just going to be paul from here on in Good luck with that. We'll make a change from dropping Climber Fisher into every episode, I suppose. We need to refresh. Let's move on to... With Jimmy Helms and Gonna Make You an Offer You Can't Refuse. This was Jimmy Helms' only hit as a solo artist, and it peaked again at this position of number eight. But Jimmy Helms did have four more top 40 hits between 1988 and 1992 as a member of London Beat. Their biggest hit which peaked at number two in 1990, was I've Been Thinking About You. Jimmy Helms was an American singer. He'd been recording since 1963 without any great deal of success. So he moved to the UK in the early 1970s and tried to carve out a career over here instead. He maintained a lengthy career of session music. He's worked with loads of people from David Essex, Cat Stevens, through to Madness, Roy Cole of the Commotions, Fine Young Cannibals and Deacon Blue. Going to make you an offer you can't refuse was written by John Worth, who had various pseudonyms. It was the same guy. He had already written two number ones for Adam Faith and another number one for Eden Kane. London Beat, still together, still gigging. They've got a new single out this Friday, March the 17th, called The Knock. Awful. And that's kind of all I want to say about this. I'm going to go on, but this is just so bad. There's a couple of songs coming up in this episode where I think there's a distinct, unpleasant undertone of men being essentially dangerous. And I I think in the terrifying lyrical content of this that's masquerading as a love song, I, I think that this is kind of an ancestor of what we get to further on down the line. Now, whether or not that's just looking at it through modern eyes upon how 70s songwriting was, that's a question. But I remember when everybody lost their, is it waste, we say? Mm. Everybody lost their waste over... Robin Thicke's blurred lines. I was a bit baffled because it wasn't really a new thing, the sort of lyrical content that was in there. There's loads of songs throughout time that have done that. And I thought blurred lines at least had some musical quality to it. The lyrics are a bit weird and a bit wrong, but I thought the actual pop tune was quite good. Whereas this, I don't think has anything to it that's good. He's not got a bad voice, and I didn't realise that he went on to be in London Beat. London Beat, I've been thinking about you, is absolutely amazing. And as soon as he said that, I was like, all right, yeah, I recognise his voice now. He's got a good voice, but the song, I just think it's really awful. I can't get away from the word awful. I failed to get all the way through it the first time, and I had to force myself to go back and listen to it a second time. The lyrical content is just so dicey about... I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I won't take no for an answer. And he's holding a gun on the cover of the record. It's just mental. Like, no, it's creepy. It's weird. It's awful. Watching him in a live video go up and sing this to young girls 
was just excruciating. I don't even think I got all the way through it the second time. That word again. Awful. I loved it. (laughs) Honestly, I had never heard this before in my life. And then a bit like Trevor, I recognised the voice. And I thought I looked it up. And of course, that's where we know him from. Shababa. 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 Actually, having listened to it a couple of times, it made me immediately add it to a couple of playlists. And it also made me think, I don't know anything about this side of music. So if I like this, who else would I like? I have absolutely no idea. There must be other people who did this sort of thing that I would also like. But I don't know who they are because I don't know anything about. Is it soul music? I'm quite happy for somebody to, one of our commentators to tell me, a load of other people that I might like, if I like going to make you an offer you can't refuse by jimmy helms i didn't even notice the lyrical content i was too busy enjoying it and wallowing in its beautifulness to pay much attention to the lyrics which having just read them i now realize are not the best um (laughs) no i think he means it from uh you know i don't think he means it in a sort of hostage kind of way i think he means it in a just you know i love you and i want to be with you and going to do everything i can to make you my girl sort of thing which was that's a perfectly reasonable message to make in 1973 wasn't it i don't know i didn't read it as a kidnap situation i'm sorry but what about the line yes i know i make you smile but things will change in a little while because i never say a thing i mean that don't come true because he's going to make her laugh. She's just smiling now, but by the time he's finished with it, she'll be crying with laughter. You're reading stuff into it that I don't think Jimmy really suggested. Like a puppet thing, when I pull the string, you're the dancer. And let's not even look too closely at gonna put my finger on you. I think it should be grateful he just stuck with that as a two-word preposition ending in N. Oh, look, stop it now. But puppet on a string one as the Eurovision. So so I won't know anything against strings and puppets. Oh, he also wrote, this guy also wrote Jack in the Box, by the way, for Clodagh Rogers. I'm going to bounce up and down on my spring. Look, you want an opinion, right? This is the point of this. You want an opinion. Okay, I might be rapey. I don't know. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I luxuriated in it. I thought it was an absolutely lovely song that I'd never heard before, that I was very pleased to have been acquainted with, and that I shall absolutely listen to again. Um, let me take you back to the Christmas Top 40 of 1988, where falling to number 60 in the charts was Brother Beyond's He Ain't No Competition from episode two. London Beat had climbed to number 21 with 9am, The Comfort Zone, which is a brilliant record. And just behind them in the charts, number 57, straight in with a bullet, Climby Fisher, Love Like a River, in the charts at the same time as London Beat's 9am, not the one that goes Shababa. That's the most tenuous climate fishing link we've had yet. So that's saying something. I I, I will continue to find them. Uh, <laughs> well, OK, Mike is going to now tell you it's rapey and horrible and he's going to agree with Trev. And yet again, here here's me on my little Westlife armchair <laughs> trying to defend the indefensible as the 70s careers into last position yet again. I sympathise with Nick in that I don't think it was intended to be. When you read lyrics you do tend to take them literally. But I think that's also the issue with the argument about Robin Thicke. If you read those lyrics literally, then you go, Christ, that is mental that he's saying that. But I don't think they're meant to be taken literally. It's song. Nevertheless, still creeps me out. Through our jaded, cynical 2023 ears, 
we're listening to something that was made in 1973. So I've got some sympathy with what you're saying, Nick. Yeah, I am far more on Team Trev than Team Nick on this one, as you've probably already guessed. But when this first came out of the draw, I was quite pleased to see it because I sort of vaguely remembered it as this sweet sounding soul ballad. I was expecting to enjoy rediscovering it rather like I did with R&J Stone's We Do It. Thought it's going to be one of those. Well, the first thing I found out was you can't really call this soul music. It's Erzatz soul music. Songwriter John Worth, fairly and squarely a pop songwriter, the producer Mike Moran, he was very much a middle-of-the-road pop kind of guy. He actually entered Eurovision with Lindsay DePaul in 1977 and came second with Rock Bottom. I think the idea behind this was they were trying to do something along the lines of the stylistics, because the stylistics had started to have hits in the UK. And Nick, if you do like this, the stylistics do this sort of thing vastly better. That's my recommendation. I think in a way they do come quite close to that stylistic sound as best as they can. It is a nice enough tune, but there my compliments must end. So if I had a capsule review of Jimmy Helms, it would be, I don't like his tone. And that's in both senses of the word. That falsetto of his, there's something strident and grandiose it was almost operatic about it it just doesn't achieve the light romantic sweetness of russell tompkins jr the lead singer from the stylistics and then the other meaning of the word tone as soon as i read the lyrics all my fond memories abruptly evaporated i just find myself thinking what was john worth thinking about when he wrote those lyrics what was jimmy helms thinking about when he agreed to sing them was he just so desperate for a hit after all these years he just chose to turn a blind eye you look at the performance clips he seems utterly unaware of the darkness of the song he's just crooning it as if it was a standard love song like it was um i'm stoned in love with you by the stylistics or you make me feel brand new I suppose it's a relief that he didn't intend to do a sort of more close lyrical interpretation. I guess we were spared. But yeah, I find it baffling. And as Steps One said, better best forgotten. Dear, oh dear, oh dear. Episode by episode, I'm finding myself, you know, smash it. They they had a word for this. They would have put me in the dumper. (laughs) I'd be in the dumper now with these opinions. I would like to recall everybody of when I passionately defended Nelly the Elephant. You know, I was outside the cool circle then. All right, I think the 80s need to save us. Let's bring on... The 80s! Represented by Modern Romance with High Life. This was the third of four top ten hits for Modern Romance. Altogether, they had eight top 40 hits between 1981 and 1983. And yet again, third time running in this episode, peaks at this position number eight. It was the follow-up to their biggest hit, Best Years of Our Lives, that had reached number four in January of 1983. It was produced by Tony Visconti, who is best known for his work with David Bowie and T-Rex. Modern Romance, formed by Jeff Dean and David James. They'd been members of the Leighton Buzzards, who were a new wave band who had actually appeared on top of the pops with their one minor hit in 1979, Saturday Night Beneath the Plastic Palm Trees. Jeff Dean left the band in 1982. He went on to become a comedy scriptwriter. Most notably, he wrote the 2005 film Kinky Boots. After he left, he was replaced on lead vocals by Michael J. Mullins, and this was their second single with Mullins on vocals. Modern Romance split up in 1985. 
They then reformed in 1999, but with their drummer as the only original member, and he switched from drums to lead vocals. They're still gigging to this day, mostly at various Butlins holiday camps. Here we go. Right, so normally you'll find me sitting here passionately defending cheesy pop music of the 1980s. So the other day I was listening to The Best of Modern Romance. I mean, Jesus wept has there been a less appropriate title for an album than that. It's like that old joke about that Phil Collins album, his like best of that was called Hits. And someone goes, how do they print a million of them with the S in the wrong place? (laughs) Um, It was a bit like that. So The Best of Modern Romance, my friends, is garbage. Mrs. P came in at one point and went, why are you listening to Ricky Martin? I was like, it's not Ricky Martin. It it was from the early 80s bizarre salsa phase that seemed to have happened. I mean, I could have understood it slightly, right, if this was a hit in the summer. Where were they playing it? You know, in a beach party or a club in the summer, you think, well, it's quite jolly and it's got kind of a summery palm trees. It actually gave me Club Tropicana vibes, but in a, this is the Z equivalent of Club Tropicana, even though Club Tropicana actually came after this. God, can you imagine if they were inspired to write Club Tropicana having heard this rubbish? On paper, it ought to be the sort of thing I like. Cheesy, mid-80s, not-too-serious pop music, but I think it's that salsa thing that's going on. It's just interminably annoying. I mean, I, 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 Paula, or whatever it's called, is terrible. Best years of our lives is okay, right? I mean, if you're going to keep one, then that is okay. No, it's just this terrible, fake, inauthentic, jaunty salsa in a week where also in the top 10, Africa's Toto, Total Eclipse of the Heart, Sweet Dreams, Billie Jean, No, No, Hey, Hey, Kiss Him Goodbye, and this rubbish. The only nice thing I can say about it is that Mike Mullins went on to work with the Alan Parsons Project, which is the only mention of the Alan Parsons Project are ever going to get, and they are great. This, like I say, I should like, but really, really did not. Sorry. I'm not sure this is a particularly good tune, but after the other two, this sounded brilliant to me. When this came on, I was like, oh, thank God. Uh, I didn't dislike the 60s one, but I didn't like it. Pretty much anything would have sounded good after the 70s one. There's plenty to this that I do like. They sound like a carnival version of Wham! But this is just all a bit a recap of best years of our lives. It even directly references that song with a oh bit in it. And I mean, loads of acts have done that, but that's a bit clunky and cheesy. I mean, there obviously are just cheesy party boys. And I I would party to this if I had no other option. Um, But I'd I'd rather (laughs) stick with everybody salsa and best years of our life everybody salsa i really really like i think it's a fun bit of bizarre 80s likewise best years of our life you know it is one of those postcards of an era that you know maybe doesn't make sense but that's that's fine i'm just not sure anybody particularly needs a deeper cut from modern romance do you go oh i'm gonna play some modern romance but hey i'm gonna go crate digging with it and it's gonna be this it does give me full nostalgia the the early 80s and i only really just missed out on being musically aware of this time i started buying records and listening to records shortly after this in retrospect i've gotten into wham in particular uh, and loads of other pop acts from the era it's nice fun Uh, mike mullins going on to join the alan parsons project is credible david james uh went on to play football for liverpool in england which was uh 
quite a success for him. It's got nice bits in it. I could see it in that era at places that were called night spot, spelled N-I-T-E, or wine bars where everybody has big shoulder pads and fabulous hair. Yeah, I quite like this, but I, I wouldn't listen to it again. I'd listen to the two tunes that I much prefer than this. But after the previous two songs, I was relieved to hear this. Can I just say that there is no fainter praise than I would party to this if there was literally no other option? (laughs) (laughs) I I think it is a song that, you know, it's a faint praise song. You couldn't go, oh, my gosh. You couldn't enthuse about this. I could enthuse about everybody's salsa. I could talk about that for weeks. And that's a wonderful pop record. Best Years of Life is this is a faint praise song, but... On the basis of the three songs we've had so far, Faint Praise is beginning to look like it might be the best we get. I've got a shocking piece of information for you here, Trev. There actually is a modern romance deep cut. Namely, Can You Move, the dub disco mix. Right, the 12-inch of Everybody Salsa. There's a big section in the middle called Salsa Rhapsody, which Jeff Dean raps. And that got remixed and dubbified in the States removing most of the rap it became can you move it did one of the billboard dance charts and larry levan used to play at the paradise garage genuine credible modern romance deep cut for you there that is crazy drop it into one of your sets and you'll get massive kudos from other djs (laughs) yeah i feel about modern romance coming up in the draw for 1983 pretty much as i felt about tight fit coming up in the draw for 1982 in both cases Charts were full of great records. Nick has already mentioned most of them in the top 10. I'm going to add two more for the same top 10. Star Council's first single, Speak Like a Child, and my beloved Orange Juice having their first hit with Rip It Up. So it's a real shame we got this. And it's another example for me of the Mandela effect. It's the only hit in this top 20 that I had absolutely no memory of at all. And this is the period where I was tracking music obsessively, almost to an unhealthy degree. If you'd read me out a list of this 1983 top 20, including High Life by Modern Romance, and you'd said, true or false, one of these is completely fictitious, I'd have gone, no way was there a hit by Modern Romance called High Life. Just no way. But there was. Now, thing is, I'd actually really like the Leighton Buzzards, which was the group from whence modern romance sprang. They were witty. They were punk credible. Their first single, 19 and Mad, is proper punk rock. They did four sessions for John Peel. I mean, I am tempted to make a darts-like claim here that modern romance were actually punk. I won't go quite that far, but it's interesting to hear their first two flop singles, Modern Romance by Modern Romance and Tonight, because they are both kind of herky-jerky new wave, a bit like a poor man's XTC. The second one's added a bit of synth, but not salsa at all. Then they broke through with Everybody Salsa, which actually was played by all the big soul jocks at the time. It did really well. It was not seen as a joke. I bought it. I thought it was great. I thought it was really funny. Problem is, that locked them into a formula that they never got out of. I think Jeff Dean, who was the wit of the band, he was the lyric writer, he realised that quite quickly. I think that's why he left in 1982. And they got old Mullins in to take his place. 
it's hard to believe that this was produced by the genius Tony Visconti, who gave us classics such as T-Rex's Get It On and David Bowie's Heroes. I mean, I know the man's got to work, but really. I don't hate fun. I know I'm being a bit of a snooty NME reader quite often in these episodes. I don't hate fun, but I do prefer it when the people involved sound like they're having fun. Everybody else had passed that test. I got the feeling that was a fun record to make. I don't get that feeling from High Life, and I didn't get it from The Lion Sleeps Tonight either. It's well made. Well, Tony Visconti produced it. Of course, it's going to be well made, but there's no joy in it. The jollity, it feels superficial and forced. Made by a band who box themselves into a corner. It makes me think of audiences on top of the pops who've been dragooned into pretending they're enjoying themselves. Someone's put stupid hats on them and they've been made to wave balloons around. And there are those ghastly dancers cavorting around going woo, woo, woo. Yeah, I agree with Nick. It would make much more sense as a summer hit. It would also have made a lot more sense as a Christmas hit because this is pure office party conga line music. The video... Well, the video is basically just yuppies on the raz, isn't it? It's distressingly Thatcherite. Makes me like the track even less. But as Trev said, really, that at least the lyrics aren't actively unpleasant, which in the context of this episode feels like a breath of fresh air after Jimmy Helms. I'd have bought yuppies on the raz if they'd done that in a 12-inch. The yuppies on the raz remix. Yeah. Okay, then. Let's tackle... This is Informer by Snow. It was Snow's only top 40 hit, peaking at number two in the UK. It spent seven weeks at number one in the US. And it is thought to be the best-selling reggae single ever in the States. The last verse is rapped by MC Shan, who was already well-known in hip-hop circles as a member of a collective called The Juice Crew. Snow was born in Toronto, Canada, as Darren O'Brien. And I gather from my research that the name Snow originated as an acronym standing for Super Notorious Outrageous White Boy. Hmm. He started writing this song in 1989 while he was being held in police custody on two charges of attempted murder. The charges were later lessened and Snow was eventually acquitted. However, by the time that Informer was released in 1992, Snow was actually serving an eight month prison sentence for assault. So these days, I imagine this would be perhaps questioned about cultural appropriation. And that is, it's a tricky subject to navigate. But like certainly for this song and this artist, the backstory of a white Canadian having Jamaican families move into his neighbourhood and him falling in love with their music and getting involved with the scene actually seems to me more like an advertisement in favour of multiculturalism than anything else. So I, I don't know that that deals with the cultural appropriation side of things, but I just think that's quite a lovely story. Canada had a lot of Jamaican immigrants come in at the time and yeah, he was fully on board with it. He thought they added vibrancy to his neighbourhood and he fell in love with reggae and, you know, there it is, it's uh, the best-selling reggae uh, record in America. Syllabalistically, I think Snow's flow is outrageously good. I haven't got a clue what he's on about, but then I don't know what Oasis are on about uh, lyrically in most of their songs, and it doesn't stop me liking them. I think this is a great postcard of the early 90s when you think of, you know, lots of the other acts that were around at the time. It fits in alongside the likes of Shaggy and stuff like that. This track is almost a meme 
without all of the memes that have been made about it, you know, you can picture it in your mind's eye. Now, there is undoubtedly, even now, still too much of this boys will be boys when it comes to bar violence, which is what you find out about when you scratch the surface, uh, as you were mentioning, Mike, the backstory behind this. You know, that oh, well, you know, he, he's just a bad man and, you know, that's okay and it's, it's not okay. But as a pop record, I think this is a brilliant, <laughs> a brilliant advertisement of the Canadian cod reggae scene. I do play this and when I listened to it, I was reminded how much I really think this is a, a fun record. I don't think the fact that he's going on about not being an informer when he's been charged with assault and battery and attempted murder is as fun as the record itself. But as a pop record, I think this is really very good. Um, there's a game which I would encourage everyone to play when you've had a few drinks at a pub, if you're just having a chat. And that is, which artist has the biggest gap in the number of streams between their biggest hit and their next biggest hit. So I thought, oh, surely it's Tones and I. Surely Dance Monkey's had a gazillion streams. But no, the next biggest one has still had 325 million streams or something like that. So there's one for you. Go away. I mean, Snow, nearly 100 million streams for Informer, about 2 million for the next most streamed one. So that's quite a good starting place. But go have a think about that and go away. What's the difference between most biggest hit and next biggest streamed hit and see what you can come up with with your friends in the pub one night it's good it's good fun when you get going with that the reason i mention this is because i'm trying my very best to avoid talking about snow's informer which is without question the most incomprehensible song in the history of music i realized by looking at it the other day that the only word i know from the lyrics of snow's informer are informer even when I read it, I thought, well, that's not what he's saying, is it? Even when I could see it, whilst he was saying it, I was like, that still doesn't match up to me. I have cognitive problems with that being what he's actually saying. I, I hated this at the time, and I, I hate it even more now, I think. It's ridiculous. It's just ridiculous, rubbish, nonsense. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, honest to god just i couldn't stand it at the time what you've told me about the backstory i didn't know that doesn't really add anything positive does it to it so that's not great the tick in the positive column is it's yet another example of how rappers have really hilariously boring actual names and that he is just darren right it's like gerald easy so what I will do instead, if you'll afford me a moment, is I could give you the top 40 charts history of snow. Would you like that? Oh, yeah. All right. So artists, you've obviously got Snow, the Snowmen, Snow Patrol and Snowy White. Do you remember Snowy White, Bird of Paradise? Yes. Yeah. And then hits wise, you've got Snow by JJ72, Snowden by The Dove, Snowman by Sia, It Doesn't Often Snow at Christmas by The Pet Shop Boys, Snowbird by Anne Murray, Snow Coach by Russ Conway, Snow Hey Ho by the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Snow on the Beach, Taylor Swift and Lana Del Rey, Snowbound for Christmas by Dickie Valentine, Snowbound sounds like something you have after you've had too much Christmas pudding, um, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Two versions of that. Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra. Do you want to build a snowman off of uh, Frozen? Skiing in the Snow by Wiggins Ovation. 
Flowers in the Snow by Freddo and Footprints in the Snow by Johnny Duncan. There's your top 40 snow recap. My pick of those is Snowden by Doves. Great track, that is. I look forward to working through all of those in due course. Um, this is an example of what I noticed at the time in 1993. There was a clear resurgence of reggae hits in the charts during the year. So in this week's top 10 alone, we had Shaggy at number one with O'Carolina. We had Shabaranks at number three with Mr. Loverman. And then looking at the bigger hits from later in the year, we've got Inner Circle, Sweat, a la 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 long. Uh, we've got Bitty McLean, It Keeps Raining, Apache Indian, Boom Shakalak, Chakadima some pliers, three hits, uh, starting with the best one, Tease Me. And you could also, at a stretch, include Ace of Base, All That She Wants, and UB40's cover of Can't Help Falling in Love, which we mentioned last time. So there's a lot of reggae around. He was bang on trend with that. Yeah. I had never understood the lyrics. I had never bothered to unpick them until I did my research leading up to this episode. And yeah, there is some hard man posturing in there. Thankfully, Snow's Patois is sufficiently thick for me to be able to happily tune all those unpleasant connotations out. And that's what I still prefer to do because I play this out, played it out quite often and it works. And I'm in no mood to cancel it because I liked it then. I bought it then on 12 inch and I still choose to like it now. Yeah, it's interesting he wrote it when he was remanded in custody for a crime he didn't commit, and that was thanks to being grassed up, which is clearly what he's railing against. But also he stayed in custody for all those months because he didn't actually want to grass up the actual culprit, which is sort of other amongst thieves in a way. And then MC Shan, who comes in with the um, guest verse at the end, according to the song, not according to real life, MC Shan's been banged up too. But just like Snow, Shan won't turn informer either. There's, there's some degree of morality in there, I think. Yeah, there was some comedy value, having a white guy adopting Jamaican patois and thereby landing the biggest reggae hit in US chart history for feeling charitable. You can make comparisons with Eminem. If you're feeling less charitable, you can make comparisons Vanilla Ice. There is, I'm going to put this on the extracts playlist, there is a parody video by Jim Carrey from some American sketch show called Imposter. And yeah, it's a very uh, detailed takedown of Informer that has had millions of views on YouTube. It's not some long forgotten sketch thing. It's um, still seen as quite iconic in Paula. oh sorry now i've not read the lyrics because i've got a history of not enjoying when i uh read the lyrics for, such as uh in that 70s song that we dealt with earlier but one of the ones that comes through and i'm pretty sure is what he's saying is when he goes to the police station the policeman looks up me bottom if that's what he says, I heard it a bunch of times. I was like, that's definitely what he says. That has got through onto major Radio 1, BBC airplay. And, you know, that's quite explicit about what's happening. And I think in the world of rap reggae and things like that, you can get so many things through that if you sang it, they wouldn't let you sing. But you could say it or you can rap it or you can burble it. And I, I think that's quite interesting because that is what he's saying, isn't it? He, he looks up at me bottom. The full line is, they look down my pants, look up my bottom. For next time, Nick, if you could come up with all the songs in the top 40 that have ever had uh, body cavity searches, 
like referenced in the lyrics. That'd be cool. I'd say. He looks quite excited. Right then. Here come. The Represented by Justin Timberlake with Crimea River. This was the second of 21 top 10 hits that Justin Timberlake has had from 2002 all the way through till last year and counting. It peaked at number two. Altogether, Justin Timberlake has had seven number twos, most recently Can't Stop the Feeling in 2016, and four number ones, most recently Mirrors, but that was all the way back in 2013. And as a member of NSYNC, he had also previously had six more top ten hits between 1999 and 2002. Timberlake co-wrote the song with Timberland and Scott Storch, who both produced the track, and Timberland also contributes some vocals in the bridge section of the song. Timberland had already produced big hits for acts such as Missy Elliott and Aaliyah. Scott Storch had produced hits like Still Dre for Dr. Dre and Family Portrait for Pink. Although he denied it at the time, Justin Timberlake later admitted the song was inspired by his breakup with Britney Spears, and the video makes the link even clearer, as I'm sure we'll go on to discuss. Uh, it did go on to win the award for Best Pop Video at the 2003 MTV VMAs, despite being dismissed by Britney at the time as a publicity stunt. Side note, parts of the pre-chorus of this song were later reworked in 2018 on Without Me by our old friend, For those of us of an advancing age, Timberland and Timberlake involved in the same song is just confusion, isn't it? It's like Paul and Paula in many ways, Timberland (laughs) and Timberlake. A-land, A-lake. So, I mean, critically quite successful with this. Commercially, obviously, extremely successful with this. And as you say, Mike, commercially very successful since. Big star, been in lots of films, also terrible on the whole from memory there will be a lot of people out there i imagine who like this song it's a very big hit it's it's probably the most instantly recognizable of this week's selection if you read them out i would say arguably it's the one that people go i know that one i find this every bit as weedy and schlocky as hey paula i'll be perfectly honest i find it every bit as weak and annoying as that and i cannot get to the end of this i have tried i didn't really like it at the time i realized that i don't like anything justin timberlake has done apart from the one from the film trolls which i don't think says a lot about his career that his best song is from an animated film about trolls I don't like Mirrors, I don't like Sexy Back, I don't like Suit and Tie, I don't like this or any of the other ones. I don't know why. I have no idea why. I don't know whether it's the production. But for me, this is, honest to God, every bit as pathetic as Hey Paula. It's plodding and miserable. I sound like a right grunt this week. Honestly, I genuinely hate this. I'm going to let you two defend it, but I'm sorry. I think it's terrible. So I know this tune. I know it well. I own it. I play it and I like it. But what in the sweet Jesus, the entire artistic team behind the making of this video were thinking of, I do not know. If you've never seen the video, briefly, Justin portrays someone who needs counselling. Because I remember there being a bit of a scandal at the time about it. So I watched it anew and couldn't remember how it ended. And I kind of hoped there would be a punchline at the end of it where he realises that he needs counselling. 
But that doesn't happen. Uh, what instead happens is he breaks into his ex's house. It is so obvious who his ex is. Even if you don't particularly follow celebrity culture, and I, I, I don't particularly follow it, but it's so obvious who the ex is. And then just repeatedly shows that he's not over this relationship whilst attempting to look as cool as Jamiroquai in the virtual insanity video with some sort of dancing that's been shot at weird angles so that it looks like he's defying gravity. He's trying to look as cool as Jamiroquai and fails spectacularly. He just looks ridiculous in it and ends up looking like a really sinister, toxic male who just needs help the video is bad when we were talking about the song from the 70s i've already had in the 90s just a little bit of toxic masculinity and this video is just awful which is a shame because i think the tune is a good one it's a breakup song where someone blew it and unlike in the video is using the song to move on if you know Timberland as a producer, it's really, really obviously a Timberland song. He produced 97% of all the records released in this three-year period by anyone. And this one sounds like all of those. It's got that plunk, click, every trip, all of his songs go. <laughs> sound like someone's sort of chewing on a large piece of cheese. Um, but it's a good musical snapshot of what was around at that time. That was a very popular production style I, I just think it's worthy of a far better video if there was a resolution if you know at the end where he just goes i'm making a mistake here but there's not he walks around he's sniffing her hair from behind at one point whilst he's sort of hiding in and out of closets and coming out and watching her in the shower the video is a terrible artistic choice that mars what I think is otherwise a really good pop record. So yeah, the song's great. Uh, it's not for the first time I've had a video somewhat put me off a song, but I still think the song's great. That video though. Whoa, no, no. Yeah, for me, this is a, a classic example of when an ex-boy band member is eager to show the world that he's a mature artist in his own right. It's a tradition that stretches at least as far back as Robbie Williams and at least as far forward as Harry Styles. And yeah, I agree musically, it absolutely works. I loved early 2000s R&B. It was thrillingly adventurous and daring and forward thinking, and nobody did it better than Timberland. I love the stuff he did with Missy Elliott, like Get Your Freak On, all of those. Uh, Aaliyah, We Need a Resolution, Tweet, Oops, Oh My, all of those. This is a really well put together piece of work. I don't think it does follow any formulas. I don't think it is uh, a bog-standard Timberland, although I do take on board what Trevor was saying there about the rhythm. To me, it still feels innovative. It's carving out its own unique sound. I really like those pitch-down vocal stutters in the background. They add something. However, as much as I do basically admire Justin Timberlake, and I have enjoyed a lot of his records, he could be a bit of a cock in his early days. There was the whole Super Bowl nipplegate business with Janet Jackson in 2004, which was to the tune of the follow-up to this Rock Your Body, which is the tune I actually thought Nick might have liked, to be honest. Anyway, her career was all but destroyed by that. He emerged unscathed. In fact, his initial reaction was, hey, man, we love giving you all something to talk about. He did finally apologise, but it wasn't until 2009 that he finally came out and said, I wish I had supported Janet more. 
And it wasn't until the screening of the Framing Britney Spears documentary in 2021 that he gave a proper and long overdue apology to Britney Spears. Yeah, Britney called this record and this video a publicity stunt. I think she was absolutely right to do so. He was just capitalising on the breakup between two major headline-grabbing stars in order to further his own nascent solo career. And he does so in a way slut chains her in the song and he humiliates her in the video. He, all the way through, he's performing the song with this malevolent sneer He's really enjoying this. And then he, he actually films himself having a revenge shag on her bed while Timberland is outside in the car with kind of gloating expression going, the damage is done, guess I'll be leaving. And then a Britney lookalike enters the house that he's broken into, takes a shout while he watches. And then coup de grace at the end of the video, she finds the film of the revenge shag playing on a TV. I just like, how nasty is that how toxic is that so as a piece of music it's superb i bought it at the time i bought the album justified at the time as a song mm. decidedly questionable i hope there's nobody listening who would watch that video and think oh no actually that's entirely reasonable behavior if you think what he does in the video is reasonable get counseling the character and i hope it's a character that he was just doing to sell records which even then still a piece of shit move but get counselling. It is wrong. You are not over it. Yeah, they hurt you. You need to turn a page and do better than this nightmare of a video. Couldn't agree more. Let's move on quickly to... This is I Could Be The One by Avicii versus Nicky Romero. It was the third of 10 top 10 hits that Avicii had between 2011 and 2017, and his first of two number ones. The other one was Wake Me Up in July 2013. His real name was Tim Bergling. He was a Swedish DJ. He took his own life in 2018 at the age of 28. Now, if, like me, you thought Nicky Romero was the featured vocalist on the track, no, Nicky Romero is a fella. Nicky Romero is a Dutch DJ who collaborated with Avicii on the production. The vocals are actually supplied by a Swedish singer-songwriter called Nuni Bau. She's not credited as a performer, but she does get a credit as one of the songwriters. She's actually a massively prolific songwriter. She's worked with loads of people. Clean Bandit, Charlie XCX, Carly Rae Jepsen, Katy Perry, David Guetta, Demi Lovato, Rita Ora, Fallout Boy, and our old friends, Union Jack, and Wolsey. Uh, I really, really like Avicii's music. I think in Levels, he made one of the best dance records of all time. And I particularly like that before it became the thing to do as it is now, Avicii was prepared to, admittedly under the vast umbrella term of dance music, to make music that really used loads of different styles and influences really up to Avicii they did one style of dance music that was most dance artists did uh, and Avicii came along and he did definitely loads of different styles I mean, he's got obviously folk influenced tunes he's got a couple of tracks that are almost just folk he's got the banging EDM stuff like this uh, he's got like piano anthems and when he died I was I was very sad because he, he was just so talented at making stuff that loads of people think is easy but loads of people can't make as well i'd forgotten about this tune actually when it came out i was like oh I, d I don't know that i know that and then as soon as i heard it i know it and own it but i own loads of avicii records i play loads of avicii records 
it's got just enough to it to fit the pop mole. And then with the vocal, it's got just enough to make you sit up and listen to it. So you can just treat it as a dance record and, you know, just sort of switch off. I let a lot of dance music just wash over me. I love dancing in nightclubs to dance music. I also like working to dance music because sometimes I don't want to, you know, listen to Radiohead really depress me. And sometimes I want something that I can just sort of kind of have as a, a bed. I think it's really good mainstream dance. Uh, I know that dance isn't for um, everybody and this is, towards the EDM end of things. So it's more banging than, you know, say a house record or whatever. But I, I hope people don't ever just write off artists like Avicii because within a relatively straightforward format, he did innovate. I think he was really influential, not just on the mainstream, but I think within a, a tragically short period of time, he made a lot of absolute bangers. And I think this is one of them. I think last episode of the one before, I think you made a comment, Mike, that you thought that I was a song person. What, what, what did you mean by that? I think you go for songcraft over texture. I will forgive an iffy song if I find the surrounding arrangement and texture interesting. I think you will start with the song before anything else. Yeah, and I think this is a great example of that because I think melodically this is absolutely magnificent. I think it is a brilliant tune very simple tune but i mean it's essentially levels with vocals right but in no way is that a bad thing as trev says levels is fantastic so if you essentially remake levels and stick a decent vocal over it it will be a great tune which is what this is we were talking about calvin harris two or three weeks ago and then in my brain they're two artists that I put in sort of the same thing. And I like Avicii much more. And I think it is because I don't know whether he has more of a pop sensibility or it is that it is more focused on the melody and the tune than it is on the featured vocalist or the whatever. I don't I don't know. I love You Make Me. I love Waiting for Love. I mean, you know, picking Simon Aldred from Cherry Ghost to sing your vocals on Waiting for Love is just an absolute masterstroke. It's a brilliant record and it works really well. Obviously, the story is tragic. Just someone who, had they not had to be famous, would still be making this stuff. You know, it was the, the having to go out and play it and feature and be forced to tour and whatever that I think was ultimately what led to his very tragic demise. But I, I, I don't know why. It's not normally the sort of thing that I like, but I think uh, of all of this type of music, Avicii is by far my favourite artist. And I think this is a really great pop record. I really do. Oh, boy. Oh, God, here we go. Yeah. Oh, God. I feel really bad about what I've got to say now. That was really interesting hearing what you two said about this record and totally respect your opinions. I have come to very different conclusions and I'm going to have to stick with my guns here. Um, <clears throat> right. I've said this before. We do all have our genre prejudices and EDM is probably my biggest genre prejudice of all time. To begin with, I was all for it. I love the stuff that uh, David Guetta, Calvin Harris, 
uh, Lady Gaga's producer, Red One, uh, Tayo Cruz, the stuff they were putting out in 2009 and 2010. I thought it reinvigorated the singles charts. I enjoyed a lot of the singles from UK grime artists and US R&B and hip hop acts who were incorporating dance beats in what I felt to be interesting new ways. But then around about the end of 2010, my position started to shift. And I think the turning point was when Rihanna came out with Only Girl in the World. That's when I started to think, oh, God, not another one. When will it ever end? And it didn't end. It was quite the reverse. And for me, it just felt like the charts became flooded with these identical sounding tunes all following the same formula. It actually stopped me following the charts for the first time in my life. That is how genre averse to EDM I was and, I have to say, remain. Right. Up until that point, there'd never been a pop music genre that made me think, oh, this is garbage. Call this music. What is this world coming to? Oh, I don't know. I've gone all the way through the 90s and noughties, accepting all changes and actually feeling quite smug that I, in, even in early middle age, I could still enjoy current pop. I genuinely thought I was immune from the ageing process. Yeah, there were some genres I didn't particularly like along the way. There were power ballads, new metal boy bands on stools, but nothing that made me feel that our civilization was doomed until EDM came along. Right. I've got a comparison here with what I felt about modern romance. I felt modern romance was serving up fake fun. I think EDM serves up fake excitement. By and large, it strikes me as being very cynically assembled to press the same pleasure points over and over and over again it hollows out everything i used to like about dance music there's no ebb and flow you can't lose yourself in it it's just crass hook after crass hook after crass hook it is exhaustingly triumphal it makes ibiza trance sound subtle for god's sake and right from a dj perspective there's no reading of a room and responding to the room with your track choices even mixing that came kind of redundant some of the bigger DJs just ended up pressing play on a pre-planned set so the pre-programmed pyrotechnics will pop off at the right point I don't have much to say about this particular track yeah I agree it is very similar to levels in the way that uh, high life was very similar to best years of our lives it does what it does I can ultimately just about live with it I don't think the song is up to much, unlike Nick, but I will say to his credit, Avicii, for me, did address that weakness in all of his subsequent big hits. Like the next big hit was Wake Me Up. And for me, that marks the point where he went more song based. You've got that kind of bluegrass campfire sing along thing coming in still with those ultra catchy instrumental hooks alongside. I'm aware that he was hailed as a genius when he passed even Nile Rogers paid him a fulsome tribute they'd work together I don't want to speak ill of the dead I don't hear genius yeah he's better than some he has his moments levels I mean that basically sums up the whole of EDM in one track you've got levels you don't you don't need any more just let's have levels let's enjoy that Wake Me Up is genuinely great. I love it. I play it out. It works. But this is going back to what I said about Calvin Harris at his commercial peak. I can't credit him with much more than competent efficiency. Shall we mention the video? So the video's a bit off. It's about an overweight, bored office worker indulging in a kind of Shirley Valentine fantasy of escape to somewhere hot and sexy. 
And we're on her side up to a point, but we're also being encouraged to laugh at her along the way. There's a scene where she's stuffing her face with lots of food when she's on a Shirley Valentine fantasy. We're meant to think that's kind of disgusting. This is awful bit towards the end of the video where she stands up and she starts gyrating and rubbing her nether regions in full view of her office colleagues, one of whom actually vomits on camera. And the final payoff, she escapes the office, gets free, and is promptly run over by a truck in the last seconds. It's not Crimea River levels of off, but it is a bit off. And I don't think it has an awful lot to do with the song. I've said my piece. I have got to come in and defend the video. I thought the video was really good. Bearing in mind, you know, an awful lot of dance music tends to be just fit lasses dancing in their pants. I thought it was, she's got a mundane life. I don't think we're laughing at her at all. I think we're on her side. She's fantasizing about having a life. And then whilst the the bit at the end really like shocks and appalled me because I wanted her to go off and do all the things that she'd been dreaming about doing, I, I felt the message was, yeah, life's too short, you know, just crack on and seize it by the uh, scruff of the neck and go and live the dream. I thought it was a really positive video. I do think mm. perhaps you are letting your EDM prejudice flavour your opinion of the video. <laughs> and I don't really want to get into your EDM prejudice because we'd be here for a long time as I try to talk you back from. Yeah. Because, I mean, that really was just wow. As you said offline last time, hmm, two middle-aged men arguing about EDM. <laughs> Not a good look. I honestly respect what you say about EDM. You see it in a different way. So do millions of other people. Who am I to say they're wrong? I absolutely get what you're saying. I find there's loads of EDM songs that are just clatteringly loud. And I think at the time there were too much of it in the charts and stuff like that. But then by the time the charts were getting cluttered with that kind of stuff, I was also aware. I'm going, yes, I'm becoming an old geezer now. I now, I go, what's the best one of whatever is the charts are full of you know pick and choose that because i think there are some real highlights and i try not to get disappointed with the low lights that's dance music for me because of the volume of releases that come out with dance music there is too much of it but rather than going oh my god i'm overwhelmed with it i go no hang on a minute what are the ones that i think are brilliant you know at the time of the zombie nations and the darude sandstorms there were millions of songs that sounded exactly like that but those ones stood out and i think were brilliant and uh, have become classics and the rest of the filler goes by the way it's you know it's now that this type of stuff's becoming played on re radio too you get in the radio two filter effect of the ones that make it through and last forever and you go oh wasn't it a golden age no of course not there was loads of you know just like in the 80s there were loads of whatever the song was by modern romance just filler songs but the everybody salsas were great. And I would urge you to just filter a wee bit more on EDM. It's not all bad. <laughs> I know. And it's, it's the old thing. If you're not into a genre, you always think it all sounds the same. And if you're into a genre, you can hear the difference. And it's easy to sort the wheat from the chaff. That's a totally fair point. That was incredibly harsh. Well, <laughs> it happens sometimes. It's an opinion show. It's based upon opinions. You've had some hilarious rants before now, Nick. If it doesn't work for you, then it doesn't work for you. But I would agree with Trev. It doesn't all sound the same. Because I don't like EDM. So if it all sounded the same, by definition, I wouldn't like this. Yeah. It'd be very interesting to find out how, where the listeners stand on the whole great EDM question. That's for later. This is where we do our voting. I have found it very difficult this week in terms of 
what to put third. I had no problems with my most bad and hated. Got to be Jimmy Helms for the 1970s, entirely for the lyrical content. That, for me, gives it automatic minus one point. Jumping to the top, my top two are easy. It's still the two singles that I bought physical copies of at the time. So number one, Snow Informer. Number two, despite the video, Justin Timberlake, Cry Me A River, because it's musically magnificent. That leaves me with three records which are completely meh. Paul and Paula, Modern Romance and Avicii. And after much deliberation, I'm actually going to give third place, this may shock you, to Avicii and Nicky Romero, because there is something to it. Paul and Paula, fake romance, cloying best consigned to the dustbin of history. And I I can't, for the sake of 21-year-old me, I cannot revise my opinion on modern romance at this age. It's got to stay in the mech zone. Okay, Nick, how about you? I'm just going to undo all of your votes, <laughs> if that's all right, because mine is almost exactly the reverse of that. So most bad and hated by some distance in a week where all of this pretty much is terrible is Crimea River. Awful. Awful, terrible, plodding, miserable rubbish. In the Mezzone go Modern Romance and their weird salsa revival. And even though I really don't like it at all, Snow's Informer is better than Crimea River. In third place, only because I can't stop having internal conversations with my head where it's going, hey, Paul, hey, Paula, I'm going to put hey, Paul and hey, Paula. I don't know why. It's terrible, but... I don't know. Something about it has stuck somehow. In second place, I will go for Avicii. I really like that. I think it's a great track. And I am, I really like going to make you an offer you can't refuse. I was never heard it. I really uh, liked it. And I think it's miles ahead this week of anything else. It was the easiest choice I've made, I think. Well, speaking of easy choices, the easiest choice of this was the worst, most hated. This was the easiest, worst, most hasted selection I've had of this entire podcast that we've done so far. I have absolutely no difficult whatsoever naming this as the worst song we've had in the 10 episodes that we've done. This is possibly the worst song I've ever heard. I'm not even naming it. It's that 70s one that can just absolutely get out a travesty. I take Nick's point. I think we're putting modern interpretations upon lyrical content at the time but i don't see that the lyrical content at the time was that much better just awful again that word so for third place i'm gonna say modern romance just miss out on a point because it's not their best work and i don't think it's catchy enough to capitalize on quite how bad Justin Timberlake's video is. So Justin Timberlake sneaks in a third place because I do think it's a really very good pop song. Uh, I do think the video diminishes that significantly. I'd almost say I don't think that video should be played. It's creepy and wrong. I did struggle separating first and second because I think they're both very good snapshots of the period of time. And I guess the backstory behind Snow 
harms it a little bit because, you know, I don't get the honour amongst thieves. Yeah, all right, you're a bad man. I still don't think we should necessarily be glorifying how bad people are. I think that sucks. But I think it's a very good pop song. So Snow Informer is second. I mean, I'm just putting Avicii ahead. I don't think it's Avicii's best song. Off the top of my head, I would say that I think there are four songs by Avicii that are better. But I still think this is a very good song. I, I really enjoy the video. I think this is the easiest to like. I do think this is a tough week, but definitely not as tough as Nick found. Compared to the first three decades that we had, the last three were a vast improvement. Right. Well, this is how things stack up so far. In last position, purely by virtue of having nothing but met all the way through, zero points, modern romance for the 1980s. Equal fourth position, one point each for Paul and Paula from the 60s, Jimmy Helms from the 70s. Third place, two points, Justin Timberlake for the 2000s. Then quite a jump. Second position, five points, Snow, Informer for the 1990s, and our current leader from the 2010s, Avicii and Nicky Romero, with six points. Now, at this point, before I invite our listeners to do the voting, I need to explain something to you. As this episode is our 10th episode, once your votes for episode 10 are in, we are going to close round one of which decade is tops for pops that means that we will reset the master scoreboard so all the scores from all our decades go back down to zero we will move the final result for episodes one to ten to our brand new championship scoreboard which we can then add to motherboard the motherboard oh yeah it's the motherboard now and um, that will accrue every 10 episodes right so next time around episode 11 that is the first round of round two that gives a fresh start to all of our decades 2000s and 2010s i am looking at you to do better than you have done so far that means that for our next result bulletin there'll be a somewhat extended bulletin we're going to have a good old think about the final results what it says about the decades in question We'll be looking back on the highs and lows of episodes one to ten, maybe suggesting what our favourite decades might have been based on what we've heard. Okay, in order for you to vote, it's the same drill as always. You can vote via Twitter at which decade tops, Gmail which decade is tops at gmail.com, Facebook search which decade is tops pops, you'll find us. You need to specify your first, second and third favourites in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated or at least your least favourite. Any additional comments are more than welcome. Your voting deadline this time is 6pm UK time, Tuesday the 28th of March. We're now going to take our EDM battle offline and I'll give a toss for the next two hours. (laughs) Or else... We'll go and watch TV and pour ourselves a glass of wine. Who knows? Anyway, for now, it's bye from Trev. Ta-ra. Bye from Nick. Bye, Paula. Bye from me. Bye-bye. Which decade is Tops for Pops? Oh, hi, Di. <laughs> oh, I can't hear what they're saying switched his microphone off it's private talk between man and wife <laughs> couldn't hear what you were saying to die there
Sorry, she's got pebbles to make, so I was just trying to establish the noise volumes. Yeah. She makes pebbles? Yeah, ceramic. That's not... This is not how I thought pebbles were made. Like, you go at the beach, there's loads of them, and someone's making those. But they don't say a hug from mum on them, do they? Oh, I found it. Unison hello again. Oh, God, here we go. It's like the bloody Chuckle Brothers, this. Oh, she's not going to start heckling, is she? Just go back to your pebble story. These aren't working. All right, hang on, hang on, oh, hang on. Oh, oh pebble crisis. Pebble crisis. I'll um, do it without headphones, it's fine. Okay. You're going to do it without headphones. I've had to do- donate the headphones soon. Oh, you've had to donate the headphones. She needs headphones to make pebbles. Well, she needs headphones to watch Netflix while she's doing the very boring job of making pebbles. Oh, I see. I thought she was protecting equipment. She's doing some heavy-duty chiseling of the rock. Oh, God, no. It's just to alleviate the boredom of it, yeah. Each okay. pebble lovingly hand-carved from <laughs> a gigantic stone. You want to see my loft, honestly. It's like stone engineers, just massive. <laughs> All right, then. It'll be three, two, one, hello. Three, two, one. Hello. Hello. Hello.